What is happening, everyone? Welcome into the season two finale of the Platform Podcast. I am incredibly honored and excited to have in Dan John as my guest on today's episode. He is truly a legend in the field, one of the original OGs of kettlebell training, but his expertise and knowledge goes so far beyond that. Dan is uh, a man that I aspire to be like. Uh, He is not defined by any one uh, title that you could give him. He's a professor. Uh, He was a Fulbright scholar. He was an All-American athlete, uh, a a national champion in the discus. He's competed in the Highland Games. He holds uh, American records in weightlifting, Olympic lifting. Uh, He is a wealth of knowledge and a man who has really taken the time and effort to share his knowledge with the world, codify his knowledge and give people tools. And he gives of his knowledge uh, so, so generously. Um, I highly recommend following him on uh, Instagram. Check out his podcast. Go to Dan John University. You can learn all sorts of things. He is truly a wealth of knowledge about strength training and coaching and principles. Um, And one of his great, great strengths, I think you'll see from this conversation, is taking what most people consider to be very complex uh, concepts and being able to distill them down to their essence and put them into bite-sized lessons that nearly anybody can comprehend um, and they are usually very simple instructions. They may not be easy, but they're simple. And that's the and that's really the the gist of it. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, so without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Please enjoy. All right, welcome into the Platform Podcast. My guest today is Dan John. If you don't know who Dan John is, do you even kettlebell, bro? Uh, Dan John is a professor. He is a coach. He is one of the original big names in kettlebell training here in the U.S., and he is also the owner of Dan John University. He's written roughly a dozen books and he's all over the place with just a wealth of knowledge. I am incredibly excited to have him on. So Dan, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. You bet. Thank you. It's uh, this worked out really well. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. So we were, we were talking just a little bit about, uh, before we, before we started, you said, I, I should have seen you as a kid. Um, I, I operated under the assumption that because you were a D one athlete, uh, that you, you would fall on the genetically gifted end of the spectrum. And, uh, I, I'm, my assumption is it sounds like maybe wrong. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, in the ninth grade, I weighed 118 pounds, played middle linebacker, uh, you know, threw the discus two feet behind the ring. First time I tried it. Built myself up to 103 feet that year, which was really good. And then bulked up to about 130 as a sophomore. Graduated high school at 162. Then met Dick Nightmare and went from 162 to 202 in four months with uh, Olympic lifting. Nice. Um, yeah, so I was. I mean, I, you know, I'm a fast, twitchy guy, obviously. And uh, I certainly have a lot more. Uh, sorry, I'm just pouring my tea. Um, no problem. I think I have a lot more ability to push through pain than normal people. Uh, a lot more ability to stay on the path. And I got to tell you, Jordan, you know, that's it right there. I mean, you, you can say, I'm, if I have a gift, it's my ability to do what I say I'm going to do. You know, uh, my professor, uh, uh, Dr. O'Connor, uh, she told, she told my students, they went up for a visit at the school one time. She goes, yeah, we sat down with Dan John to get his master's. We said, do this. He said, stood up, nodded. Nine months later, he had his thesis. He had all of his coursework done and everything finished. So I got a master's in nine months because I, and she said I was the only person ever to do what they said, you know? (laughs) Uh, So I, I have that rare ability to follow good advice and finish. 
I think that uh, I think that consistency is the base of any pyramid when you're talking about skill acquisition or uh, completion of of a milestone, right? Like consistency applied over time is is really the the base of the pyramid, right? I think so. I think so. I mean, we can argue about a lot of other stuff, but it's going to come back to repetitions about repeatable, about doable. You know, logical is going to be in there. A lot of O's, you know. that's awesome so how many books have you have you written now i I said about a dozen because i i I lost count i was going through them i was going through them in my head but uh i I can't i can't separate the books from the ebooks from the videos from the like all the all the various content over the year i think it's 14 uh with what you would consider uh two with dragon door hard style and easy strength and then uh nine plus with Loria on target. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's fantastic. That's a lot of, that's a lot of output. Um, what is it like? I mean, what is it like to publish a book? Like, what is that? How does, what does that feel like to, to decide, Hey, I'm, Hey, I'm going to write a book and then, and then B to actually get it, to get it published. What does that feel like? Well, I, I always joke that if my dad would have been alive, he'd be traveling around, you know, cases of my books, giving him every single person. <laughs> Uh, it is, uh, th- th- there's two sides to it. Um, you know, first, I don't like to read anything I write. So that's the hardest part of the process for me is reading my own stuff. But I find it very easy to knock a book out. Uh, you know, I always say throwers throw, jumpers jump, sprinter sprint. Writers write. You know, I get up at five, six in the morning, depends. Um, you know, get the dog up, you know, start, you know, usually now the now I start the coffee. I used to just have it set as a timer, but I, I always get up before. And uh, I'll come up here, answer emails. I'll answer uh, forum posts, and then I start writing. And I write until it's time to work out. I work out, then I eat. So that's there's my writing schedule. And I, I think the key, if there is a secret to writing, is to um, is is to not. It's well, it's just like how do you get. How do you get strong, man? You got to put the reps in. So it's about the reps. You know, it's still, it, it, success in life keeps circling around the same truths, you know? I mean, you don't marry your wife and turn her on the wedding day and say, I love you. That ought to hold you over for 60 years, you know? You, you should <laughs> probably tell your kids every day you love them, you know, by your words and your actions. So it really, a lot of it's a rep. Uh, the one thing that I think helps me a lot is I have a very uh, spreadsheet brain, if then. So when I'm putting together a book, very often it's the, you know, what, somebody will say, what if? And then, of course, well, do you really want the answer? Or are we just going to have, are we just chuckling along here? Because if you if you say, what if? I mean, I, you got three hours with me because I'm going to go, I'm going to take that thing all the way out, you know? <laughs> so We're going to do down a full decision tree map of, of what ifs and what ifs. Absolutely. And that's. You know, if you ever decide to coach football or, well, strength, throwing, what I mean, anything. Heck, you want to teach, you know, first grade, you know, the alphabet. You know, it's going to be an if-then thing. You know, it's going to be, you know, you got to master certain things before you can move on. And that's that's not appreciated anymore. I I I think if I may, one of your greatest talents and one of the things I most admire about you is, is that logical, that logical process of taking things to their first principles, right? You're, you're able to take, you're able to take what, what most people conceptualize in their head as these very difficult things and break them down from what their assumptions are and go all the way up the tree to no, here's, here's the first principles from which you start and you give people very simple instructions that are easy to follow and simple, not simple, easy, easy to follow in that they're simple instructions, not easy to execute necessarily, but you, you, you give them things that are easy to understand and say, you got to do this, right? Like strength made simple or simple strength, excuse me, is very much about that, right? It's about, Okay, you come into the gym. You you did five reps yesterday. Today you do six. You come back tomorrow. You do seven. Right? Like it's a very simple, very simple premise. If you can do that, yeah. Um, you know, a good friend John Powell, the old world record holding discus. You know, he was teaching a boy one day how to throw, and and John said it's simple. Boy goes across the ring, twit, you know, trips over his own feet. He goes, "You said it was easy," and John said, "No, I said it was simple, not easy." And yeah. To me, I would say the bulk of life is simple. I, I do. I honestly think that when I retired at 52, as you know, as a high paid high school teacher, you know, 
when people ask me, well, what did you do? And it's like, well, what did your mom and dad tell you? And they tell, they say five things. I go, yeah, I, I did that. <laughs> like, what, what you just, when I was 21, I started saving for retirement. You know, uh, I saved 10%, at, you know, when I was making $9,000 a year uh, as a full-time teacher, four preps, uh, coaching three sports, I made 9,000 and saved 900. I mean, you know, that's not a ton of money, but you know, compound interest is a magical thing. And I, I, I'm using this as an example, obviously, yeah, yeah. but it's like, you know, it's the simple hard, right? The simple hard. Yeah. Well, you know, what the old joke about when's the best time to plant a, a fruit tree? Well, 10 years ago. Oh, well, what's the second best time? Well, today, you know, it's, uh, it's just, it's most of life's truths really aren't that complicated. You know, they're really not. I, I find that uh, when you think you have a new idea, uh, it usually means you haven't read enough old books. Uh, can I just, will they able to see me right now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, when I scroll up here, okay, that's every Strength and Health magazine from about 1945-46 to when it ended in 1985. That's also Muscular Development magazine. That's also all kinds of Olympic stuff. Uh, over here, I have a massive, I mean, just a huge bookshelf. I have another bookshelf. These books, by the way, are the translations of my books in other languages. I kind of think that's cool. But That's very cool. So when someone says something to me, it's not unusual for me to go back to John Jerome's uh, Wrestling Encyclopedia uh, to a Strength and Health magazine and say, well, you, I know you invented it, but it was invented a lot sooner. Uh, I love Brett Contreras. We're, we're actually good friends. But the hip thrust, I was taught the hip thrust in uh, 1984 at the Olympic Training Center. We were taught this pelvic balance or pelvic core stuff that same week. We were taught, uh, I think it's, it was called Rhythmatic Interval Training Exercise, RIT, which now people are like invented. Everyone's invented all this stuff. It's been around, you know, for decades. I mean, I mean, sneaking up on, sneaking up on 40 years, you know. Just yeah. those three examples. Well, and you now have, I mean, you now have uh, 40 years with the whistle, right? As your, as one of your, as one of your books says, it's, it's been 40 years now and across how many sports has it been now that, cause I, obviously I know throwing is throwing is your main, sure. is your, is your main thing as a, as a, as a coach, but as also there's been other sports in there as well. What, what all have you coached? Well, uh, American football, uh, uh, high school wrestling. Uh, I, I, you know, I, as a strength coach, I mean, there's not a sport you wouldn't touch. Yeah. Uh, I was the chess moderator at school for a long time, which I thought was really, uh, being the chess coach is a very insightful and helpful thing. Uh, in fact, I kind of miss some of the kids. Dan, what's his first name? Uh, Deanna was his sister, whatever. Just great kids. They just loved it. And we, they would read the books and we work on things. Um, so wrestling, uh, American football, track and field, Highland games, obviously, and then just support with a whole bunch of other sports. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm really not comfortable. Oh, volleyball. My God, volleyball. <laughs> ah, that's one of my favorite chapters. Probably my favorite chapter in 40 years. Of course, now it's what, 43 years with the whistle. So yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, so tell, so tell me about volleyball. Why is that? Why is that your, why is that your favorite? I haven't had a chance to to digest the whole book yet. So I I'm, I'm just getting started. I just, yeah. I just stumbled upon it this week. Sure. Well, I'm sitting in my office one day and my daughter, Lindsay called me crying and she never cries. So I knew this was an issue. And in the book, I, it's a funny little thing. I, I stick all, all her words together in capital letters, you know, basically she says, you know, we have too many kids. And so we need so now we're going to have to have, get another coach. We're going to have two teams. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, yeah, isn't that terrible? And then I suddenly realized, oh, that new coach is going to be me. <laughs> so I did a smart thing, which I recommend to anybody, anytime. I, I asked three of our varsity volleyball girls. And I said, just tell me the three things I need to know as a volleyball coach. I don't want to hear anything else. And they said, get the serve over and in, number one. You've got to get the serve over and in. Two, protect the middle. Don't worry about the sidelines or the back line. And number three, you got to play as a team. You got to be connected. So one, two, three, that's all I focused on. 
we were terrible. We were St. Francis number two. So the joke was, we're number two, you know, which <laughs> no one ever understood, but I thought it was hilarious. I think, that, <laughs> I think that poking fun at a problem does more than worrying about the problem itself. You know, if you have ugly uniforms, make fun of your ugly uniforms, you know, or for whatever, you know. And uh, it's a long story, but ultimately the big tournament came around. And among the 40 or 50 schools or whatever it was, uh, teams, we took third. And the truth is, there's no way in hell we could have won the thing. Urban Meyer's wife, uh, the coach at Ohio State in Florida. Yeah. Well, she Seemed to be the Jacksonville Jaguars head coach from if, if news reports are to be believed. That lasted an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> She had a team made up of all club volleyball girls. They had all, and here's the thing, though. We battled them right to the end. And the, the only thing is we caught them in the semi versus the final. We would have taken second. And here's the thing. My little, my little land of the misfit toys took third place. Uh, one girl had a uh, – she had an artificial – not an artificial heart. She had a heart transplant. Uh, the two boys I had in my team were about the height of my belt. <laughs> I had one I had one athlete when that was Lindsay and but our serves were always over in it we protected the middle we played as a team if something happened I would take a timeout and I say what's going on uh Carlos would always say um it's number three coach we're not playing as a team that's true but we're also not protecting the middle and it was nice and and it was amazing to watch I that's funny because I didn't know most of the hand signals the officials were doing because they didn't know the sport at all. And I was just doing my best to, you know, you know, and God, the parents would be like, so do you want us to bring Gatorade and orange slices for what? Well, you know, for halftime. Uh, sure. I don't care. I don't, I don't. And then the one parent's like, do you want me to set up the parents thing? What do you, are the parents going to play? No. So we could, and it's like, oh my God, what it, the parents' biggest concerns were orange slices, fudgicles, and Gatorade. Uh, my biggest concern was getting the serve over and in, protect the middle, and playing like a team. As long as I stay focused on what I did. And at the end of the game, they could go eat all the orange slices they wanted. I didn't care. But I wanted to win those damn games. And all of a sudden, man, Jordan, we were, we started winning these games. And people be and finally we played our, uh, our own number one team. And we just manhandled them. And they had a boy who'd later played Division One football, and it was amazing. You know, it was good. we beat him. You know, because we followed those three things that are the keys, and that's just my life lesson. If you focus on the big stuff, the little stuff will take care of itself. Interesting. I actually had my my college my college offensive line coach actually inverted that that. Uh that statement that was one of his mantras if you take care of all of the little things the big things will take care of himself basically saying no detail is too small right and and we we focus on all same same thing just articulated in a in, a, in the inverse manner right it was like the wins will happen if you focus on taking care of the the fundamentals first focus on blocking the guy in front of you and and don't worry about whether or not we score a touchdown you just you know get your job done right who'd you who'd you play for uh, I played for Luther College here in in Decorah, Iowa. Okay, okay. Milt, okay. Milt, Hen Milt Hendrickson was the name of my college offensive line coach, and he went on to uh, the Baltimore Ravens as a scout, and now he's uh, the vice president of football operations for the Green Bay Packers. So he's uh, he bad. was he was uh, the most demanding coach I have ever had in my life, and uh, I, to no surprise, at times did not enjoy <laughs> playing for him. Um, but uh, he told me in, uh, I think I had uh, 20, 20 something career starts with, with him. And uh, I got one good game from him out of, out of all of those. It was, <laughs> it was, it, I got one good game uh, that I played a good game and it was the game that I graded out like the lowest of my, of my season, but I was playing against a, a, a three-time all American and I graded out at like 85% against a three-time all American. And uh, that was the one time he told me I had a good game, but I knew I earned that good game because, because Milt was, if nothing else demanding, but he got, he got high, high level uh, performance out of us from that, uh, from that level of expectation of us. So, well, I look back to the best football coaching that we, did you ever use him blocking him? No. Yeah. I got him. You got him. <laughs> and him blocking. Well, sometimes, you know, especially in the modern game, you just don't know what you're going to see. Yeah. 
And uh, some t it, it can be that simple. Okay, enough of that. That's good. That's good. That was a nice uh, overview. Yeah. Yeah, we had we had a lot of we had a lot of fun with uh, our we ran a no huddle offense uh, and and we would call our plays at the line of scrimmage, which had different keywords and alternate words. And we had hot words that changed kind of the meaning of what we were saying at the line of scrimmage. We had a lot of fun with that because you would get you would get these guys that thought that they knew what the what the what the signals were and, and they would they would try and they would try and guess or they thought that they knew. And uh, that was always a lot of fun. But there were there were definitely times when, you know, by the end of the game, you can only say Boise so many times before they realize that that means blast off the left side and that that's what's coming but our whole thing was we don't care <laughs> we don't care if we you know that we're running blast off the left guard because you can't stop it and if and if you can because you know it's coming then we're not doing our job <laughs> that was that was that was that was quite a bit of fun so well so how did you you know how did how did you get into kettlebells how did when did you first encounter kettlebells i guess is going to be my, my first question because you probably encountered them much earlier than than most of us um so when did you first experience kettlebells my, my first time, well, I had seen them in Strength and Health magazine, but the first time I really looked at them was uh, in 1971, uh, J.K. Doherty's book, the, the Track and Field Omni book. And they had all these Soviet pictures in there and they were throwing kettlebells. They were doing, uh, we would call them deficit deadlifts now with, with kettlebells. Mm -hmm. They were doing jumping deficit deadlifts with kettlebells. They were throwing them. They were doing various we would probably even call it kettlebell juggling now. And uh, that was the first time. And then in 75, I'm pretty sure it was either 75 or 77. If my dates are wrong, I apologize. The USA USSR track meet was held either, it was held in Berkeley and uh, the Soviet hammer throwers were down at College of San Mateo. And they were throwing what we would now call more puds or poods, okay? Uh, those are those ones that you'll see in the track and field world. It's a cement weight with a long loop on it. And you do it for various throwing exercises. And I watched them do it. And I thought that was the secret to throwing far. And then of course, we kind of ignored them you know, for a long time. My Olympic lifted and didn't really need anything else. And then around, oh, I don't know, when the kettlebell kind of showed back up with John Duquesne and Pavel, um, the first time I actually used a kettlebell was at the National uh, Ultra Weight Pentathlon when one of my buddies, is, this has got to be what, 200, uh, 2,201. And one of my buddies, I'd been staying around since 7 a.m. and hadn't thrown yet because the meat was so poorly run. And I mean that, I'm not taking it back. <laughs> so he said, I'll, I'll help you out. He ran to his car and he showed me the, a rudimentary swing. And I thought, holy cow, this is something interesting. And then uh, I had a tra big track meet down at University of California, San Diego, uh, probably three in three, 2003. And my buddy, George Matthews, uh, took me in the garage and showed me kettlebell snatches. And uh, he said he thought, he thought the kettlebell snatch is probably one of the best exercises for a master thrower. Uh, at the time, I was still Olympic lifting, so I didn't really, well, no, actually, I just started uh, uh, loaded carries. But I was pro, and then I went down to the very first kettlebell convention. I won the, I know I took second in the weight for distance. He had to throw the six foot eight guy beat me, but still <laughs> more chance. And they, I got, <laughs> I got a twenty eight kilo kettlebell, and that's what I used. I used a twenty eight to prepare for the cert, and so I did, the, I did the hundred snatches with the twenty eight. I felt like I'd be able to handle the twenty four in a state of fatigue, you know. And I only had to do, I think, 84 or something like that at the time. But it was, yeah, but I enjoyed it. Um, my feedback on the cert, which I took very seriously, John Duquesne later told me was actually was some really important feedback. And I'm very proud. I think I, I think maybe my little feedback alone might have turned him from a baton death march into an actual, you know, instructional weekend, you know. Um, when I first got certified down in San Jose, every time a plane went over, you had to do 10 or 20 swings. Well, we were right next to an airport, so planes were coming in all the time and leaving. Problem is, the, the person trying to instruct never had a chance to finish a sentence. Mm. And so the, the, there was, it, the learning environment was horrendous. And every time we got into small groups, fortunately I had Brett Jones, who I think is an outstanding teacher, and my heart bleeds for those people who didn't have Brett. Um, he would say, okay, okay, listen, 
do this. And that helped me immensely. Of course, as an Olympic lifter, it's, it's tough to go from the kettlebell world into, um, uh, pardon me, yeah, from the Olympic lifts, because we do so much more that hinge, we hinge into a squat, which of course would be brutal with a kettlebell. Mm -hmm. There's a few other things, but um, yeah, I, uh, so, so I came back, uh, I called up my buddy over at Gill, I bought 113 kettlebells and outfitted my gym with kettlebells. So we had, a, a, so we were doing the power lifts, Olympic lifts, uh, power lifts, Olympic lifts, kettlebells, tumbling, calisthenics, hurdle work in a typical workout for a high school team. Um, my kids, I had a number of my students go on to kettlebell certs and many of them said, you know, all day long, I felt like I know all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's a long story. And then I, I moved up quickly from, um, from participant to assistant to team leader to, um, senior kettlebell and then master very, very quite quickly. Nice. So, yeah, that was, and yeah, I'm, and I'm, and I'm proud. I'm a master kettlebell instructor for both Strong First and um, uh, the RKC. Um, I've done it, I, I've done I've done workshops for both organizations, and I and I and I enjoy it. I, I enjoy my time. I enjoy I enjoy the people a lot. Um, I know a lot of uh, GS people. I've done two GS competitions, but that's not my style. That's just not something. Uh, I it's a sport, and I don't. It's a sport. So you have to kind of, you know, train it differently. And I'm not, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, yeah, it requires a, it requires a level of specificity because it, because it is a sport. I mean, right. like any, like anything else, if you, if you want to be good at the sport, you have to, you have to train for, for the sport. And that is, I think that's the, the biggest, I think probably the biggest difference that I see between the two, other than the obvious uh, style <laughs> differences that the, the, the intention of strong first or hard style, or, you know, the RKC style is, is improved fitness and capability across, across various disciplines, not just specific to the kettle. Yeah you know yeah. and gs and gs is very specific to get good at the sport yeah and it's like when i'm when that's why i'm very specific when people ask me questions in the podcasts or whatever on forums it's like okay what do you mean by that? <laughs> almost everybody it seems like nearly every person on the planet now is an expert in brazilian jiu-jitsu and it's like dan i want to do gs sport and you know marathons and triathlons and you know, gear of sport. What do you think I should do for a training program? Well, you're gonna. No offense, but by definition, you're gonna suck across the board. You know? <laughs> you're chasing too many rabbits there. Too many rabbits, baby. Yeah. So that's. Yeah, and and I, I know I come off as an old curmudgeon, but uh, it's just I, when you answer the same. Um, How do you feel about simple and sinister? Uh, <laughs> travel, you know, I don't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to put a public service announcement out there to hopefully for, for, for anybody that doesn't know, Dan has made this awesome tool called the workout generator. Go to Dan John university, go to the workout generator. And before you ask Dan a question of, you know, I have this equipment, this equipment, and this goal, uh, what should I do? Go to his website and use the tool that he has programmed because you can literally go in and type in what equipment you have available, what your goal is, press a button, and it will give you a program. It is awesome. Um, and, and, it, and, it, and it will save you a ton of time and hopefully it will save Dan a ton of time. If you just use the tool that I'm sure he invested time and money, uh, in developing to filter out the number of questions he gets about the, the specific, what program should I do? And what's good about the generator is that you press the button, you, you press that you have a suspension trainer, you have a kettlebell, you have an ab wheel, you want to train an hour a day, five days a week, you press a button and you're done. It gives you mobility work. It shows you the exercises. It gives you reps and sets. Yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I'm, I am uh, Brian. We have to thank Brian because he's the one. When Brian first looked at well, Brian, Brian Walton, when he first looked at my work, he said, this guy is an algorithm. This guy is a walking algorithm. It's weird because um, 
in almost all my life, I, I lived that way to the point that I actually have to work on not being that way with friends and family. <laughs> so it is, I know that struggle. <laughs> as good as it is that I have the brain that works this way, it's also a bit of a curse to me. I work in I work in data science consulting for uh, my for my day job. So I work with uh, I work with some of the best and brightest PhDs in the world that write algorithms and do AI and uh, machine learning and things like that. And I I know many people that have that same curse where it's like they can't shut it off. It's 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 very it's very challenging for them because they have a mind that works in a particular fashion, and that's uh, it's very powerful and it's very awesome and when unleashed in the right direction. But uh, it doesn't work so well with humans sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> so how how long did it how long did it take to to develop the workout generator well i think i started working on it probably in 1972 <laughs> i had a I, in fact uh, my journal right over there i can probably show you the picture but i i drew a little human figure and then i tried to figure out okay if i do this exercise and then i put you know squat and then i put this exercise incline bench press on the body parts and I was trying to figure out what I was trying to do in 73, 74 is what would be the best workout I could do during football season that wouldn't, that would help me for track season, wouldn't break me during the season. What's, you know, I was trying to find the least I could do my first attempt at minimalism. And when I did that, just that first time, I started realizing that, you know, <laughs> if you do certain exercises, you can really not, you don't have to do other ones. You know, and, you, and that's hard. And the problem is, Jordan, you know, we're, we're living in a time, and I, and I do like Arnold Schwarzenegger very much. I, I've met him twice, and I've got great respect for him. But, you know, ever since the educational bodybuilder came out, we have what I call Frankenstein's monster training. Mm. You know, arm day, leg day, you know, does that work your lats? You know, when I'll do, be doing a snatch, and some jackass will say, does that work your lats? It's like, <laughs> what? Well, I don't, and then, you know, I, I, I notice people who do train like Frankenstein's monster, they never look like they actually weight train. It's like these, I'll go online sometimes and I'll get these criticisms about my work and some 130, the guy will post a picture, he's 135 pounds and, you know, his best bench is a little less than my youngest daughter and, his, and he can't deadlift more than anyone, check that. So my wife, my daughter, and both of my daughters can deadlift. Well, Lindsay deadlifted at 350, but they can all deadlift 275. Now, having said that, you would be stronger than my dog because he doesn't have a poseable thumb. <laughs> so, you know, I have to be careful because Mr. Black over there uh, is not holding up his end of the bargain in the weight room. <laughs> uh, trust me, I've talked to him about it. But pound for pound, he's still probably stronger than that guy. <laughs> well, he's faster, that's for sure. <laughs> and has a better sense of smell, right, brother? <laughs> So I, I'm, you brought up minimalism and I, and I, I want to give you a chance to kind of explain what that is to people that aren't familiar with your work, because I, I think it's one of the, you know, it's one of the great contributions that you've, that you've made to the world of strength and conditioning, because to your point, we have kind of this, this world of overwhelm and maximalism and swipe workouts. And, you know, if you want your booty to grow, you got to hit it six different ways from seven different angles and yada, 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 and bands and hip thrusts and, you know kickbacks and blah, blah, blah. And you have articulated a philosophy that, that is very different from that and actually works. Well, I, I don't. So I got a good book right behind me. It's right over here. Uh, right there. It's Pat Flynn's book on generalism. And I like, I like, so generalism is this idea that the toolkit you learned in learning how to play the piano will help you learn how to play the guitar. And the lessons you learn from the guitar will help you in the weight room. And the lessons you learn in the weight room, you, you got that. So yep, yep. you try very hard as a generalist to use the same learning tools to, to help support you here, here, and here. Minimalism is a tough one for me because my, so there's minimalism. Like I like some of Powell's stuff. Like I, I, right now I'm, I'm being doing a fairly minimalist program. I'm training twice a day. A gentle listener, don't don't write down and do what I'm saying. I'm doing something very specific. So at 9.30, people from all the world show up at my house and we train. 
And right now I'm doing heavy hands, a lot of uh, suspension trainer work for the, for the, you know, the T's, the Y's, the I's, the rows, the stretches. Um, and I'm doing a lot of overhead pressing because I'm doing in the afternoon, the 10,000 swing challenge. So I'm swinging 500 times a day. So for me, my fate, do you mind if I jump back to 1974? By all means. I kind of proud of myself because the roots of everything I do come from that year. Uh, I thought to myself after reading the magazines and that if when I'm older, like 63, for example, how old I am today, if all I did was Olympic snatch and clean and press, that would be a pretty, that would be a great workout. It would keep me young because, you know, the fast twitch work, mobility work with the snatch and strong, you know, with the clean and press. I got to tell you, man. So today I did swings and presses, which basically is, I wouldn't say uh, a distance relative of those two, but pretty close. It's a hinge and a press. So for me, the great minimalist workouts would be a hinge. Uh, by the way, I just posted an article on the university about uh, I called it easy hypertrophy, dips and deep squats. Uh, now, <laughs> your mileage may vary, but if, <laughs> if you want to do a minimalist program, dips and deep squats, with the deep squats, you know, you're trying to get up to 100, 100 reps uh, with, check that, 50 reps with your body weight, okay? Um, in very quickly, in 14 workouts. Um, Ooh, that's brutal. But, you know, Pavel has Power of the People where it's uh, deadlift and press. By the way, and I've said many times, if those two exercises would have been rack, deadlift, and bench press, none of us would have ever sold a book ever again, ever, because uh, everyone would do that program. Uh, the original <laughs> book was what? Bent Press and Kettlebell Snatch. Uh, Naked Warriors, Pistols, and One-Arm Push-Ups. Uh, those are minimalist programs. When I was at Utah State my senior year, I was just bored. You know, after all those years of lifting, you know, by that time it was my 13th or 14th year in the weight room. And I had been, I just, I'd recovered from a really serious issue. And so all I did my senior year basically was snatch and power clean, Olympic snatch and power clean. Hmm. And Coach Mon, who's this very famous throws coach, said that I had the very best year in the history of Utah State, you know, track and field. So that's high praise. And when people ask me what I did in weight room, I'd say, yeah, three days a week, I <clears throat> snatch and I power clean. Mondays, I go for volume. Wednesdays, I go for load. Fridays, the day before the meet, I go up to 80% for a single, just so I get a little bit of nervous system crack, creaking, you know, a little snap, and then that's it. No, what do you really do? Well, <laughs> because I was so big, you know, I was so yeah. big. You know, I was 231. They how, how, tall, how tall are you? I'm just six foot. Okay. So I'm not really, what's weird though, Jordan, is everyone, so I'll post a picture with me with like, I got a British basketball player, a friend, he's a pro. He's seven, four, and the two of us are standing like this, but I did it in front of a door, just for reference. So many people wrote, God, I just always thought you'd be so tall. And it's like, dude, there's a door frame behind us. He is clearly over the door frame by a lot. Like his head <laughs> is way over the door frame. And I'm close to the damn thing too. So yeah, I'm six foot, but I, my junior, senior year, they water weighed us and I was at 8.9% at about 231. But, you know, being Irish, you know, they, we don't have cuts. So, you know, you don't really <laughs> look like you ever did anything. You know? uh, uh, I, I got a, found a picture the other day when I was first with my wife and I'm standing on a rock and I'm, and I'm, as ripped as I've ever been, but I mean, I just look smooth as glass. You know? <laughs> You're <laughs> not giving a, me a lot of hope for my cut. Uh, <laughs> Cause I well, too, I too am Irish. Yeah. So we had a guy, we had a, a, a person uh, at Utah state African-American athlete, water weighted 25% had six pack abs. <laughs> well, cause where he carried it. Now yeah. his life story isn't good because he had to deal with type one diabetes almost immediately out of college and some other things. Uh, lost a limb to it. And, uh, I don't know how he's doing that. It's been years since I, uh, I saw him. But, uh, you know, so so a minimal program for a thrower could be, now I would throw in like farmer walks or uh, heavy bag carries now, obviously. 
but you know you don't if you've got stuff dialed in and you pick big movements you don't need to do a hell of a lot you know uh i remember when i was at my peak and as a lifter would be 91. 91 was my best year as a lifter and i was down i was only doing six snatches in a workout it took 100 kilos 220 to be enough weight to drive me into a bottom position so 60 kilos i couldn't it wasn't enough to push me down and I would go up to 130, 135 for snatches and be done. And people go, that's it. It's like, yeah, I just snatched 297. <laughs> you know, you're hey, pe- people don't have it. Don't have an, a, 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 it's one of those things, unless you've been under that kind of weight, I don't think people have an appreciation of, of how, how that feels and the, you know, the level, the level of effort it takes to move a bar at that weight, at that speed for that distance, you know, and that's a, a whole other thing. Like I, I try and uh, articulate to people well, with my quite easy- often, like distance, ma- the distance you move the weight matters as much as the, the weight itself. Like that's part of the equation for total work. And, you know, Oh, you know, with my easy strength for Olympic lifting, you know, most of the workouts are three sets of two in the snatch and three singles in the clean and jerk. You, you lift five days a week and people say, well, that's enough. I said, well, that's 15 clean and jerks a week. That's uh, 30 snatches. And it, it, it's so, but it's, but I, I'm a big believer now, repetition in the Olympic lifts. And number one, never miss, never fail, ever. And the rep, getting that greased and groove and groove and groove and um, just light that nervous system up. So all it knows how to do is pop the bar into place. That's all it knows how to do. Mm. And then when you got it, when you got to let, you know, let the rubber band go, it goes. Yeah. So when you say, when you say never miss, uh, you mean if you're, if you're supposed to get three reps in the workout, you get three reps, even if that means you have to drop weight or. Yes. Yes. Drop weight. Okay. Uh, that was a tough lesson. I don't think I've ever been hurt on a make. All my injuries come from misses. Mm. So it's not just that, though. Tommy mm-hmm. Cohn, the great lifter, you know, he believed that if you missed, it took three perfect reps to undo the miss. I'm to the point that I think it takes 60. Wow. Now, I'm making that up literally pulled that out but 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 the you know the order of magnitude is is the point right like that that it takes it takes so much extra so much more work to make up for one bad miss from a neural from a neural patterning and training perspective and maybe even injury perspective too Mm. so you want to just keep popping that weight on pop that weight on pop snap you know you know boom 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 um now i also believe in you okay so this is something i do with wide receivers for example if a wide receiver gets dropitis, you know, which happens mm-hmm. in practice, I'll have them catch the ball and purposely drop it, catch the ball and drop it, catch the ball and drop it, catch the ball, drop, catch the ball, drop, so that they own the dropping. But that's a okay, gentle listener. That's a coaching tweak. I wouldn't do it in the weight room, but if you have someone who misses free throws, I would get them exhausted and have them shoot free throws. Get them used to being exhausted and shoot free throws. You know, um, you know, um, really dial up the tension and arousal because mm. that's people don't miss free throws when they're, you know, hanging around with their buddy talking about girls. They miss it with one second left in the go, on, uh, one and one. Yeah, and they're exhausted and their heart rate is one ninety. And and so you were you were talking about the 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 generalism principle, and that's uh you know, and you were talking about how like music, for example, helps you get better at at certain things, and that that is something that my vocal coach when I was when I was uh, in high school or even before high school, junior high school, when I was I would get nervous before I would sing, and it would it would affect my ability to hit the first note, and it was because my heart rate was up, and you're you're nervous, and and your diaphragm's a little bit more more spastic, and so what would he do? Have me do jumping jacks and push-ups before he before we started our lesson so that i would get in the arousal state and i would be a little bit out of breath and i would be a little my heart rate would be up and then i would have to sing and then the next time i had to sing in public i hit the first note without any problem i was i was right on pitch right and it's that same you know that same that same concept right of, of generalism i have an entire book dedicating what you just said it's called now what and what i try to do is line up an athlete's physical tension mental arousal 
and heart rate with what optimal performance should be. So, you know, as a discus thrower, a scale of one to 10, my physical tension and my arousal probably should only be about a four. And my heart rate should be in the 90s. But if I'm at 71 and at the nationals and I have a terrible performance, the mistake I made is I didn't have my heart rate at 95 where I am when I'm throwing my best in training. Uh, if, if, my, if, if they play the Star Spangled Banner and they have the, all the jets go ahead and then they have, you know, they have some little girl who has some terrible disease come out and she wishes us all luck and win one for the Gipper, that'll shoot my arousal level up. And I have to consciously bring my, I can't be thinking I'm representing the United States and the flag and, you know, every, you know, every American back home and mm. I've got to be go, okay, I'm going to take three throws in the discus and then I'm going to take three more. So and, would you, so would you, uh, when you, when you think about a, a, a stage, a big stage performance, uh, you, you, it seems like your philosophy would be more, you treat it as just a, as just another three throws. Like it's not, it's, it's, you don't want to, or do you, or do you acknowledge that it is the biggest stage of your career and accept that fact mentally, but try and maintain your arousal level at the same level that you normally perform at for any other, it's just another step into the ring for a, for a meet. That's a tough, that's a tough needle to thread. I got two good answers for you. Number one, the old uh, Dean Martin answer. And he used to say, buy the album, buy the book. <laughs> There's a video of me winning the national championship online. When I get in the ring, I'm behind by uh, two centimeters, basically one inch. And when I get in the back of the ring, I stop for a moment and you can clearly see me smile. And people said, well, why did you smile? And I said, because I was about to win the national championships. Well, how did you know? Because I had put myself in this place so many thousands of times that it was, I find, here I am. And swung the discus, picked up my right foot, blasted the throw, one by 17 feet. Having, but you have to understand that. So it is something. So that's why the book is called Now What? You just had the worst performance of your life, Jordan. I'll walk up to you and I'll say, well, now what? So you'll say, well, I'm going to quit. I hate this. Okay, fine. Um, it's been just a joy. I want to come back next year. Okay, let's talk. And the first thing I would say is, so what was, it, what was your tension level like? Well, the moment the official, the judge, the whatever, once they kicked the ball off, I just went, oh, or whatever it is. Yeah. Very often people, that's why I'm not a big fan of getting in front of the camera and jumping up and down for a football game like a bunch of idiots. Because mm. you're raising your arousal. You'll notice usually it's backups. I know Drew Brees used to do it early in his career, but he doesn't do it anymore. And when he did, he did it as a joke. Because you don't want your quarterback having high arousal because he has to go from wide to narrow, narrow to wide focus so quickly. Any and all arousal, you know, you don't want your quarterback getting into a fight. Not because he's not tough, but because that will ruin his arousal for the next play. Yeah. And so, so, and then on physical tension, if you're too tight, we, I could have you put on more clothes and literally shake it out. If you're too loose, I'll throw a bucket of water, on you know, or, you know, or just, there's tons of, <laughs> tons of ways to raise, raise yeah. tension. Yeah. In fact, that's rarely, the, it's funny. I, you'll <laughs> notice my toolkit gets a little soft about raising because uh, uh, lower because most people yeah um so and if of course if your heart rate's at 70 and you're supposed to be at 95 like you said you go do some jumpy jacks you do a couple wind sprints boom there you are your heart rate's at 95 and oddly your tension arousal level will probably adjust back with it so i make a little triangle like this this is arousal but uh well um how you look that doesn't matter so this is arousal zero to ten or one to ten Here's uh, tension, physical tension, uh, one to 10, and then there's heart rate. And what you want to be is where you need to be for, ult uh, for optimal performance. Now, for, for a power lifter, I mean, you're probably, gonna, you're going to probably be real hot in the deadlift. You're going to be right at the top there. Yeah. You'll be eating chalk and getting your face. Slapped. That's why you got people slapping you in the face and you're hitting that ammonia and you're like <laughs> anything you can to stimulate the central nervous system. So when you, you know, it's uh last play of the game. You, you run out and slap your kicker's face. 
Why not? Oh, depends on if he makes it or not. Oh, okay. Well, why not? It's because, and and the, the, the mere point that people... Why do you ice the kicker? Yeah. The, 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 when you say that, most people go, you know, wow, I never thought of that. And I'm like, so in other words, the key to outstanding performance, you just kind of thought would just happen because you're in the weight room doing skull crushers and my guys are out on the field. And we're literally practicing high high performance uh in throwing we so I'll give, when i used to coach football we had a great drill i loved it called i think i think i got it from jimmy johnson uh it was called third and 15. you would run a third and 15. if you didn't get it you'd run the punt team on they'd punt then you'd have third and 15 do it again and my assistant coaches hated it and i was like no i want to practice i want the quarterback to think it's okay to have the punter come on the field. Don't throw a pick. Don't take a stupid loss. And if we do get the first down, that's amazing. Third and 15 in high school is. Yeah, it's a very low probability of conversion. <laughs> so, but but if you can get to fourth and five uh, late in the game, that maybe gives you a chance. Or send your punter out. Send your punter out. Make sure the punt team has 11 people. Good snap, good punt. Win, win, win. So you have to practice in team sports, those transitional moments that are win-win-wins that you might not even know. Missing on third and 15 in the first quarter is fine. It's fine. Getting the punt off is great, uh, especially if it's a good punt. Um, situational things, um, you missed your opener. Uh, what, what sports are you doing right now? Uh, me, just kettlebell sport is is all I'm is all I'm coaching and all I'm practicing right now. But I I've done rugby, football. I've, I've I'm a lot like you. I've coached a lot of different things, just not nearly as long. So you know, say like you're a, you're, you're you're an Olympic lifter, and for whatever reason, your first clean and jerk goes behind your head, and now you have to retake the lift, and you have two minutes now to do it. Well, it's too late to have the discussion on what are you going to do that discussion on lifting within two minutes a very heavy lift had to have happened six or seven eight weeks before mm. the mental side of it the arousal side of it the catch your breath side of it you know your heart rate's fine you just did a clean jerk but you know if you want to bring it down you want to uh, you know you you want to know as the coach what to say to the athlete you know, here's what I would usually say. We've practiced this. We've worked on this. Hey, that's, you never lose them out the back. You know, it was, it was, I'm going to go check the, oh, I went out and I checked the platform. There was a slick spot. I fixed it. I'm making all this up. There wasn't a slick spot. You'll be fine. Kid will go up there, make the damn lift, and we move on. Yeah. But you can't wait until the world championships to practice arousal tension. Yeah. That's I, that's one of the things I love in the visualization in the visualization world. One of the things that I that I learned fairly early on that I love is uh, I stopped visualizing perfect sets. I stopped visualizing perfect games, um, or not only visualizing perfect sets and only visualizing perfect games. I started visualizing where is it going to get hard, uh, and mentally preparing myself for like in kettlebell sport. You know, I call minute seven the death minute because you know eighty percent of people that fail in a kettlebell sport set fail minute seven to eight. Uh, because it's where, you know, the central nervous system is, is taxed and the anaerobic threshold has been hit and you've been over anaerobic threshold for too long and the brain starts to scream at you, hey, put these effing things down. They're too heavy. They're too heavy. You know, and that's where most people fail. So this 10,000 swing challenge, I tell everybody, it's week three. Workouts 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Exact same place where you, there's something hard about getting three quarters of the way through anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Morehouse, the great UCLA, um, the person he, he started basically what we call human performance. It's Morehouse started. He called something end spurt productivity. Everybody's good at the end. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everybody's world champion in the last hundred meters of a marathon. All of a sudden, all that energy came back. Go back to mile 2019, 2021. And that's, that's where things change. Interesting. You see the same thing too. 
Yeah. And I see, yeah. And I see it across, I see it. You're right. It's the, and we've, I've, we've actually talked about that. Uh, we see it across events with, even within kettlebell sport, we've always said like, it doesn't seem to matter if it's a 30, if it's a 30 minute set and I'm mentally prepared for a 30 minute set, like 20, 25 minutes in is when it really gets hard. But if I'm doing just a 10 minute set, it's like, oh, minute seven is when my brain's, you know, it's always, you're right. It's always at that kind of like three quarters of the way through, like mentally you've, you framed it up as I'm going to go for this long and I'm going to do this thing. And at the three quarter point is when it always seems to get mentally hard it's a it's a really really interesting and and actually i would if i were you i would circle that part of our conversation and keep your eyes open for that when you hear it with with every other sport and just keep just keep watering and fertilizing this concept because i think you have a really good either article or or a book uh in this insight and i would even say uh, I mean, what's the toughest time of a career? You know, uh, I don't know what it's like to retire. You know, I, I mean, I retired. Basically. You just pivoted to it, to working yeah. on other things. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. If I had known I was going to make this much money now, I wouldn't have worked. Uh, <laughs> but, but you're, you're right. I mean, I'll be around, you know, I know a lot of many of my teacher friends, I'm at that age where a lot of them are, uh, starting to think about retirement and it's fascinating because you, you you begin to see that okay this year you know here you got a teacher 40 years and and in their last two years is when they decide to do this leap into this very insightful thing and like why didn't you do that 20 years ago because you like you said they it was three quarters the way through why you know why, you know it's that, it's that end spurt that end spurt is there yeah. even on the even on the scale of a 40-year career it's that end spurt yeah that's very interesting i like that i can give you about uh seven or eight more minutes okay okay yep that's yeah that's the time time we had blocked i was i was just gonna say i want to be respectful of your time i love in your in your email signature you have like your a lot of your life lessons kind of distilled down to just a few sentences. I love that. I love that signature. And, and uh, one of them is one of them is reread great books. Yeah. And you are you are you are a professor, and you are you know somebody who's written a ton of books. So what what great books do you find yourself going back to? Like what are the great books that you reread often? Well, I have a thing, a weekly newsletter called Wandering Weights. And in the Wandering Weights, I'm going through this book, The Sword and the Stone, paragraph by paragraph. And adding insights, I explain certain words. I explain how, in some cases, what I what it was like to read this at 13 versus well, 63. Um, uh, let me I'll give you the modern classics that I would I would say. I, I'm I'm a little bit I, I'm a big believer that the Sword and the Stone, Dune, The Godfather, and uh, McCarthy's Cormac McCarthy's book The Road. Those would be the four books that centuries from now will still be banging around uh you can disagree with any of them you can add any you like but for me that's my humble humble uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to summarize all of human condition i say read genesis 4 and luke 24. Uh, luke 24 is the the journey to amaze the walk to amaze mm -hmm. i think it's the most brilliant way to look at teaching parenting, any ing you can think of. Hmm. And of course, Genesis 4 is the great discussion of what it means to be humans, Cain and Abel. Uh, I love the Epic of Gilgamesh, which precedes the Bible about maybe even as much as a thousand plus years. Uh, Gilgamesh famously is told by the alewife, look at the child that is holding your hand. These things alone are the concern of men. I mean, by God. Hmm. <laughs> so you just don't do better. <laughs> you just don't. Um, as I think about the books uh, well, obviously, it, you know, um, fortunately, I, I work out with Mike Warren Brown, who might be the most well-read person I've ever met. So our ability to discuss, you know, anything is good. Uh, you know, well, you know, I like Don Quixote part one and I hate part two. And he argues I should read it again. And I'm like, no, I read it. I didn't like it. It's um, <laughs> so my wife and I with Catcher in the Rye. She loves Catcher in the Rye. And I, oh, I, I hate I, that. Book. I can't stand it. <laughs> I can't well, stand it. Little kid. Yeah. <laughs> rich kid having a bad day. Well, life's tough. Um, <laughs> um, so when, when I got back from the Middle East, I, I picked up, I was not doing well, I picked up a liver parasite 
lost 40 pounds in two weeks. I wasn't doing well. And uh, what I did was interesting as I, as I contacted the Great Book Society of uh, Chicago, and then I bought um, the Great Books. Uh, later, I bought the Harvard Five Foot Shelf of Books, and I started their uh, Mortimer Adler's uh, 15 Minutes a Day program. So I read by myself the Brothers Karamazov, which I still think is one of the greatest books of all time. Uh, obviously, I've read the I've got the Iliad and the Odyssey, and 100 different copies of that. So for me, so for me, I'm a big fan. Oh, by the way, you know, when you're in the middle of the Odyssey, what does Ulysses do? He throws the discus, and and the only Olympic sport mentioned by name in the Bible, the discus. So that's why I throw. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's only, it comes down to three things. That's what my college coach taught me. It's uh height, uh, the angle of release and the speed of release. Those, those, are, those are the three things. And when in doubt, speed of release. <laughs> he said, get taller. Wow. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> yeah, I can't work on that one coach. Sorry. So, you know, and I, and I, when I do bump into, well, I, I'm just reading, reading, I think I mentioned Derek Silver's uh, book. Uh, it's like, get what you want or something like that. By the way, it is, he's an entrepreneur, had a thing called CD Baby, did great. His, his little book is just wonderful. Um, uh, and, but when I read the book at the end, he says, you know, let me know what you think. I emailed him, he emails me back, and he fanboys me. He says he loves my work. It was just kind of a <laughs> cute little moment where here I'm fanboying someone, they fanboy me back. Wow, I mean, we can, we can go through the, we can go through the library here. Well, my wife is a Hemingway, so obviously... Mm. You gotta love Hemingway in this house. Yeah. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, I see over there. Uh, sadly, most of the books up here are, uh, you know, uh, weightlifting books. They're not. It's not as sexy as the other ones. But for <laughs> me, uh, just there is a book, and for the listeners, if if you don't even want to read the books, but you want to try them out, David Denby, D E N B Y, wrote a book called Great Books. He went back to Columbia College as an adult and he retook the canon of Western civilization. You know, when you, do you have children, Jacob? Yep. Yep. I have two. I've got a six year old and a four and a half year old. So there's a part uh, of the book of Genesis where uh, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. Yep. When you read it as an eighth grader, you're like, give me the next chapter. When you read it as a parent, it's a big, big ask. When you read King Lear as a 19-year-old, you're like, okay, crazy dad, so what? Move on. When you read King Lear and you're, uh, my case, my, my mom and dad have been dead for a long, long time, 40 plus years. And, uh, but I'm dealing with other friends and family members who are, parents are going through some issues. Mm-hmm. When you read King Lear and it's personal, here's the funny thing that I'm trying to get across. Shakespeare didn't change. You and I changed. Yeah. When you read the Epic of Gilgamesh as a ninth grader in my class, in my theology class, you'd be like, look at the child's hoarding your hand. What is he, a pervert? <laughs> when you read it with a six-year-old and a four-year-old, you're like, okay. Okay. This, this poem is singing to me over several millennia, and it's still true so when i say reread great books the author didn't change you changed mm. i love that yeah that's a great perspective all right there there are i and i i struggle with i i don't circle back to enough stuff i reread a lot of philosophers but i don't go back to to especially not especially non-fiction books that i read because i'm always trying to acquire what's the new shiny you know what's the next new shiny oh. book and you know like you, you know yeah, I, trust me you're walking with me <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say i was perfect you know? <laughs> yeah uh, well as as somebody who who writes books i'm sure you don't want to discourage people from buying new <laughs> from buying new books either but <laughs> it is nice though when i do a podcast or when uh, I write a book. Many people comment on how I I quote things that are. It, it, it's it's a bit of an honor that you and I are having this conversation here. There are there is going to be a listener or two that are actually really hit by this part of the conversation, not five sets of two. Hmm. You know, and that's to me 
Uh, do you mind reading off? Do you have it in front of you? Do you read the whole thing off? Make a difference. Live, love, laugh. Balance, work, rest, play, and pray. Enjoy beauty and solitude. Sleep soundly. Drink water. Eat veggies and protein. Walk. Wear your seatbelt. Don't smoke. Floss your teeth. Put weights overhead. Pick weights up off the floor. Carry weights. Reread great books. Say thank you. 50 words, six decades. Well done, sir. Thank you. That is, uh, that is not easy to do. Yeah. I, I've written, there's a few things I've looked over in my career. I wrote a 10-year thing for bodybuilding.com on, on 9-11. I thought that was pretty good. But I, I, there's a couple of things that I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. But that particular thing is the thing I'm most proud of because it's all bite-sized. Hmm. And it's, I, I get it. It's, t- it's, t- it's simple to a fault. But argue with me with any of those. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. They're all they're all good. That's why that's why I brought it up because I, I read that and I was like, well, that's fantastic. He managed to sum, he managed to sum up all of his all of his best all of his best stuff into an email signature. Like all all of the things that he would probably tell his kids or does tell his kids, you know, like those are those are You want to see when I send it to a business, I'll send an email to like my uh, insurance or something like that. I'll get little notes on that. I'll get like a Wow, thank you for sharing that with me. They don't know that it's just a, a you know, cut and paste, you know. Yeah. Well, Jordan, uh, are we gonna do this again? I would love to have you again. Any any time. I would I would love to. If you've if you've got the time, I'd love to have you again. There's pl- there's plenty more knowledge in there that I'm I'm happy to talk to. Let's do this again. Um, I'm a little tight on time this evening. Only yeah, no problem. There's a. I understand there's a football game tonight. Yeah, that's what they say. To my house. So I have to uh, leave the loft. I have to leave the Dan John University corporate headquarters. <laughs> the boardroom. <laughs> well, Dan, thank you so much for, for your time. And I, I, I do truly appreciate you taking the time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to, to having you on again sometime. Thank you so hey, much. Let me know and let's do it, okay? Awesome. Thank Take you so care. much. Talk again. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Platform Podcast. I'm Jordan Kundi Wright. If you have a question, please email me at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub, on Twitter at TCKBClub, online at TwinCitiesKettlebellClub.com, and please help us grow our reach and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.